What are we doing today, John? We're going to talk about Ralph Waldo Emerson. That's right. He is the first entry in what we're going to call our American Canon series. This came to us as an idea while we were doing the Lash series, which we've just concluded, obviously. And it dawned on us that no one really reads a lot of this stuff anymore. Or if they do, they just read it in high school and don't revisit it. But it is worth trying to understand what America is by trying to spend time with some of its greatest thinkers and writers and artists. And because Lash brings up Emerson in some capacity in Revolt of the Elites, we thought that we might start with his work on self-reliance. But maybe we should talk a little bit more generally about the American canon and like the vices and vicissitudes <laughs> thereof, right? Like anytime you bring up an idea that there might be some canonical text, there is the pushback of who decides? Cui judicat? Who decides? Who judges? Which is fair. America does not have a utopic history um, of actual universal equality and all sorts of things. So I can imagine why anybody would be suspicious of an attempt to create a canon. However, I think it's indisputable that there are cultural figures, political figures, etc., who have played an outsized role in determining how we think and feel, whether we know it or not. Yeah, I think in some ways we're kind of cut off from that reality because of whatever the end of history in America was like sort of the past gets extremely veiled from us until we read something like Lash and he mentions there are like a variety of intellectual debates going on at this and that time about this and that thing that kind of inform the trajectory the country takes in the 19th century in a big way. And we're like, oh, what? You know, it, you don't really know anything about that anymore. Like, no one really brings it up or is like, yeah, you know, like, this is all goes back to how, like, you know, I guess you could say, like, Dewey was reading Emerson on this, and that's why he developed his ideas in this direction, because he was really taken with this idea or whatever. Mm -hmm. It's just sort of like, I think all we know is maybe the last 10 years, if we're lucky, and kind of like, in some ways... The Western canon is more real to us here academically than an American canon would be, I think. Mm -hmm. Like somehow it's easy for everybody to be like, yeah, that's like Homer and then Plato and then all the other stuff. And like some people can read that if they like to. But it's harder, I think, for someone to say like there is a large body of literature generated in this country that kind of serves a similar purpose as what people might say when they try to gesture towards a Western canon, like a bedrock of thinking and writing yeah. that kind of forms what we're on top of today. And, you know, like not even maybe the most uninteresting thing about canon debates is like who's in or out or what or why, or if it's like, it's not really static. It's kind of an ongoing negotiated process anyways. And there was no such thing as the Western canon for most of the time that what we now call the Western canon was being created. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of a later conceptual apparatus that has maybe its uses and misuses or whatever, but people may get too caught up in debating that. And it's not really as valuable as looking at some of the works themselves and just thinking and talking about them, at least to me. You know, at some point we should do like Nietzsche's uh, essay on like history for life. Because I think the way he lays out, you know, the iconoclastic response to history, the conservative response to history, and I think there's like a one, one other, and um, what these mean are just a good way to think about how we inherit traditions, um, especially in the era of tearing down statues, which I had pretty ambivalent and conflicted feelings about. However, no tradition exists with just conservation, because then it dies. It is always conservation and criticism that keep it vital. So part of the reason that we think, when we think of the Western canon, it comes more readily to our mind than an American one, I think also has to do with the fact that most of the French post-structuralists or whatever who come in to dominate the American Academy in thought, at least in the humanities, are primarily interested in those books. So that's yeah. an interesting feature there. You know, and I don't, think that's wrong or anything but i would like to take seriously 
the body of work that America has managed to produce. Because I think you can see many of the conflicts and conundrums that we deal with today play out over that time. I mean, as we'll see when we get into Emerson. Yeah, and it's interesting that it's because of Europeans. <laughs> I mm-hmm. feel like cause like one of the things that maybe people don't really know is that like Edgar Allan Poe is one of our greatest authors, like globally, yes. most most well read, respected and influential. Something that probably most people who read him in school here wouldn't know. They would probably think of him as like a silly high school author that mm-hmm. you read the fall of the house of usher and like that's it yeah know? or a cask of amontillado or yeah. what's the other one a telltale heart those yeah, are like you, the- you read those and you're like oh like yeah, it's fine fun whatever and then you move on and you would have no idea that he was like of an immense stature internationally same with the twain same, yeah the same with mark twain or uh you know, quite a few other people too uh, maybe not as big as those guys but like um Washington Irving. Uh, oh yeah, Sleepy Hollow. Pretty big name. Wrote a lot. Wrote a lot. A lot. Much of which is hard to find in print these days, but probably yes. is of, of particular interest. Um, the uh, Last of the Mohicans guy. Uh, James Fenimore Cooper. James Fenimore Cooper. Yeah, Goethe loved Fenimore Cooper. Yeah, he, he loved liked, Emerson. He preferred too. him to Irving. He yeah. wished Irving wrote more fun Indian tales. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Nathaniel Hawthorne really weird writer having read some of his short stories they're absolutely bizarre and they prefigure in a big way stuff like the new york trilogy by mm-hmm. uh, paul auster extremely postmodern writer for a guy who is like one of the first american novelists like ever yeah i mean same with bartleby the scrivener oh yeah yeah by yeah. herman melville which of absolutely. course has a huge impact especially in in europe later on I mean, maybe uh, if we're feeling super ambitious, we'll do a Moby Dick series or something like that um, and invite our readers to read along with us or our listeners, I should say. And yeah, I think, that would be fun. Yeah, you know, because I think that this is, you know, in league with some of the things that we talked about in the third Christopher Lashup, like no one's really keeping this stuff from anyone. It's wild, widely available. And I think it's interesting that there are these debates about what American culture is or isn't and what America is or isn't and very light engagement with many of these works, at least in everyday discourse, you know, perhaps behind the walls of the Academy, there are some interesting things going on. I don't have eyes there, but as a civilian walking around in the capital D discourse, I don't see a ton of that. It's almost like, the Cold War never happened and is still happening. Yeah. It's like American cultural memory stretches like 10 years back and then the 60s and then how fucking awesome World War II and the New Deal were. You know, you just like, that's just sort of like playing the hits, you know? It's like at some point our nation is born, then we have a civil war, then we do the New Deal and kick Hitler's ass and then the MC5, and Martin Luther King. Because you mentioned that. I mean, I don't know. I would like to stereotype what I think people read these days. And maybe mm-hmm. I could try and say, like, oh, yeah, they might read The Sun Also Rises or something. And, like, uh, mm-hmm. some, um, like, that period of authors or maybe even, like, weirdos will be reading Pinchon and stuff like that. And, you know, mm-hmm. that's pretty cool or whatever. But I'm like, are they actually even reading any of that anymore either? Like, I don't really know, honestly. There's definitely pre-20th century literature, I think, kind of exists in a forgotten zone for us. And the way in which we have that other literature probably has a lot to do with the way that has been kind of like packaged in a certain way. Um, It has a certain consumer appeal or value because those things are still getting reissued by various publishers with like new and interesting cover designs. There's probably a lot more than we would think. Whereas you can only pick up James Fenimore Cooper in a like Penguin Classics edition or like a Barnes and Noble Classics edition. And those have just like a certain aesthetic that I think keeps a lot of people from really wanting to be interested in them because of the way that like consumption seems to operate around books these days. Like if you ever go and look at like book YouTubers or something, you'll know what I mean. Oh yeah, totally. I mean, I worked in a bookstore for many years and the book is like a fetish object and also the way people, the fashionable thing of organizing your book collection by color 
or whatever, which David <laughs> Brooks of the New York Times does, by the way. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, certainly has an impact on some of the stuff. I mean, look, there are all these complaints I can levy about the U.S. education system, et cetera, et cetera, and how some of this plays out. But that's not particularly interesting. And, you know, yeah. we aren't close to the levers of power. And also, we're adults, so we can make decisions to take responsibility for these ideas and this. So I think what we mean to inaugurate with this series is both an attempt at conservation and criticism in hopes to shed light on why, well, nothing feels very possible in America right now. Because there seems to be a famine of context. And it was interesting in reading Emerson, seeing so much of what is the dominant idea of what it means to be a person in America. In a way, it really felt like watching somebody formulate what becomes the post-war American subject on into the 21st century. Yeah, it's sort of striking in the way that it seems to prefigure a lot of what would come after in a way where you couldn't even entirely say like, oh, it's just because Emerson was that influential. It Mm -hmm. almost feels sort of like the opposite, like he was merely a part of a much larger stream of events, which were going to overwhelm this country that he was kind of like one signal bearer for or something like that. Yeah. You know, influential guy. We still have to read him in school. Um, even if we don't pay attention or remember much of it. I had to read him in uh, a college class. We read The American Scholar, something like that. Pretty similar in content, I think, to this one. Like, what's our broad read on this? He's kind of articulating uh, perhaps something pretty basic that a lot of people were trying to deal with, like you were saying Mm -hmm. before the episode, which is, like, what does it mean to be an American? Because up to that point, and I think this is maybe what people will say, like Washington Irving was too European to really be the first true American writer, whatever that might mean or not mean. You know, like he hung out in Europe quite a bit. He wrote about Europe quite a bit as much as he wrote about America. He wrote about America from Europe. (laughs) That's amazing. I didn't know that. That's awesome. He wrote the sketchbook of Jeffrey Cran Gent uh, in England, mainly, I think. The the one that has Sleepy Hollow and... um, all that in it. He wrote a whole book of short stories about the Alhambra or like vignettes and stuff while staying near the Alhambra in Spain. So he was kind of an international guy, I guess you could say. And maybe he took a lot from Europe and wrote a lot to European sensibilities. And I think you'll find after him, there's a sort of growing sense of like, what are we though? Like, are we just people who are trying to draw from the stream of the old world, or is there something sort of new here going on that we can embody that allows us in some cases, you know, like to cut ourselves off from what we came from. Like, how can we be like this entirely new people? And I think you get the answer to that starting in stuff like Emerson or, you know, you'll have reflections of it in Melville for sure. And a lot of different stories Mm -hmm. of, what exactly like what is Europe and what are we? That was one of the the big things in um Benito Serino. Serino, yeah, the Carl Schmitt's favorite. Yeah, Benito Serino, I feel like is in large part a meditation on that. Like what is the relationship between America and the old world? Mm-hmm. And like what would it mean? It was Emerson was talking about this in the American scholar, like what does it mean to be an American man of letters, an American scholar versus somebody who's I think as they'll start to say, like, slavishly devoted to European learning, European ideals, and European letters, like, how does an American person differentiate themselves from this? And self-reliance might be one of the most direct answers to that question. Yeah, it's like a vanguard attempt. So another thing I want to say is that in order to take a look at this essay, it's important to think about what America is at this time, which is some of what John's pointing to right now. It is not an empire. It is not what we've come to know it as, which is the most powerful nation in the world. We don't notice that it is, even if we understand that that's factually true, because within its borders, it's just, well, America. However, in like 1830, 1840, when Emerson's writing Self-Reliance and the American Scholar, you know, it's antebellum America. And America it was a series of colonies. During the Revolutionary War, one of the difficulties the Revolutionary Army had 
was frankly creating an army that felt like it belonged to a shared nation state. Everybody in each state in New England saw their state as its own country almost. It's hard to imagine that now, you know. Built for under the Civil War. Yes, and there's sort of a post-colonial hangover, uh, which I was joking with John, we still see today in that we think anyone with a British accent, particularly a posh British accent, is intelligent no matter what. (laughs) So there's this question then of what does it mean to be truly American? And, you know, I was reading Christopher Caldwell's The Age of Entitlement, America Since the 60s, which is very good in some ways, and I think falls short of the mark in others. And one of the ways it falls short of the mark is he points out that up until there's massive immigration from South and Central America, America sees itself largely as an extension of Europe. But I think that's far too tidy an articulation of that, especially when we look at some someone like Emerson in the 19th century, that there has always been an ambivalence or a discomfort in our relationship with Europe and what's it going to mean. I mean, there was a lot of looking down upon America. We were essentially a backwater fringe state. The aristocrats of England referred to it as a society of like the middling sort. There is no actual (laughs) aristocracy, you know, there's just kind of like competing versions of the middle class and then a slave class. It's where a lot of the fail sons from England and Europe come to make their lot because there's nothing left for them to inherit by the time they come come of age or what have you. It is, uh, as Albert Murray describes in the Omni-American, sort of a mongrel culture made up of all the scraps that happened in America. And that is starting to come to the fore in the moment that Emerson is writing. So that is part of the context in which he conceives of this thing called self-reliance. Now, we who live in the shadow of the Mont Pelerin Society and the American conservative psychos who really fall in love with Ayn Rand tend to think of self-reliance as this type of Horatio Alger bootstrapping conception. But that's not necessarily what Emerson has in mind. In fact, it is not about becoming the intrepid entrepreneurial god of industry. It is more about becoming an aristocrat of the soul, as you said to me last night, John. Yeah. And I, when you were laying all that out, it felt like it kind of dawned on me that Emerson, I don't really know where he's from, but he starts out in like Boston. I'm not sure where he was born. I mean, but like he's a Northeastern guy in a lot of ways. And I think it might be helpful to say that he's representing maybe a lot of Northeastern concerns. Like he's an abolitionist. He doesn't have a lot in common with like wealthy Southern plantation owners who are reading Sir Walter Scott and thinking about their direct lineage back to the Battle of Hastings, you know, like on the Saxon side. <laughs> like <Bruh. laughs> that that's that's their world. That's what they love. Like, you know, they're English to an extreme degree in their minds in their own certain special kind of idiosyncratic way. They represent, you know, like a... I mean, they are an aristocracy. They have they are, a slave class. Yeah, they, they're not exactly capitalists and they're not exactly middle class any longer, maybe, in the way that we would understand that. And it's very important for them and for their sense of legitimacy that they be Anglo-Saxon, not in the kind of like denuded way that we use that term today to refer to white people, but like actually like the idea of being an Anglo-Saxon became extremely important in the idea of what it meant for England to have some sort of sense of nationhood. Um, And it was developed in direct contradiction to the idea of a Norman ruling elite. Um, it It was big in like English historiography in the 19th century to talk about the Norman yoke on the Saxon neck. And there is this idea that England, you know, had all these traditions of sort of self-rule and freedom and things like that, that were kind of like you had an aristocracy, but you also had a kind of like, we make decisions, you know, together in our various sort of like places where we meet the hundred or the, the different English institutions, which would eventually form like parliament and Berkey and conservatism would see this as one long unbroken line of English Mm -hmm. institutions growing from the Saxon till the modern uh, against the like effete French feudal despotic rule. Right. Yeah. You can, you can sense that in, um, you know, when you read like famous works of propaganda, like frankly, Henry V. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Or um, more contemporarily, 
what's his name? He wrote uh, The Wake. Paul Kingsnorth, which is written in a shadow tone of Old English, is about the Norman incursion into England and what a shock that was to mm. uh, the indigenous English population. And, it, and that's the population that a large part of the Southern aristocracy finds itself as like a direct descendant of. And it's extremely important, I think, for their idea of themselves and what they're doing in the Americas um, and why they're doing it and what legitimacy that has. And just mentioning it to say that like there are many worlds in America at this time, and that's one of them. And Ralph Waldo Emerson represents like something completely different, I think. But we tend to, in retrospect, collapse American history into like whatever New Englanders were saying. I think there is a certain well, move and in towards- part because the the Union won the war, right? The Confederacy is the only American. This isn't to say indigenous, which is a totally different story, but is the only portion of America, the country that has experienced defeat on its own land. Yeah. Aside from maybe like the War of 1812, but you know. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that's in a bit of important context for Emerson because what he's presenting, and maybe we'll just get right into it, self-reliance for Emerson is um, a big part of it, I think, is about not really regarding tradition as much. He's really anti-traditional in a certain sense. He doesn't really like social mores. He doesn't really like anything that exists simply because it used to exist. Mm -hmm. And he identifies a kind of slavish spirit as something that will attend to such ideals. And it's sort of, you see in that like a large concern maybe with what we were just talking about, like the fact that many Americans saw their connection to Europe as important. He doesn't really seem to care much for like organized churches of any stripe. He starts out as a Unitarian minister, but eventually becomes something else. Yeah, um, his, his uh, first wife dies and it's a huge crisis of faith for him. He's, although let's to make it a little bit more complicated, he's an avid reader of Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Mm-hmm. I believe he met him at one point. A lot of his knowledge of, we'll say, German philosophy comes from Coleridge's Biographia Literaria, I believe where he talks a lot about Immanuel Kant and others. And that's kind of the sieve through which Emerson is going to receive some of that. But he's also reading like the Hindu scriptures, the Bhagavad Gita. He's reading some Confucius, some Mencius. He's generating a bunch of thinking that's extremely eclectic and international and taking advantage of the fact that right around this time, you're going to have access to like translations. I'm not sure if he studied Hindi or anything, but translations of some of like what we now call the major works of the world religions you might say like this yeah. is a, it's like an ecumenical international endeavor for him and ironically he, at least intellectually it is yeah that's that's kind of where i was trying to go with this is it's sort of interesting because on one hand he's trying to posit like an american subject as someone radically free of anything but an extreme present and the guiding force of their intuition and a fidelity only to their own sense of who they are against everything else. But in large part, the sources for these ideas are really extra American, you could say. And he sort of does, I think, what you could only call an extremely idiosyncratic reading of a lot of these things in formulating his notion of self-reliance. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense, right? He has this whole moment where he talks about the the self-injury of self-consistency, mm-hmm. which seems to make sense for somebody who's putting together such an eclectic body of thought because the extreme present, I think, is the right way to put it. You know, this is a really interesting cultural and intellectual challenge, right? So we talk about the post-colonial hangover. We talk about the split between New England and the South and sort of the different conceptions that are happening in America at this time. And we've talked about the specter of Europe over America. Now, if you're American in the way that Emerson is. If you're a New Englander, let's say, you know, he's living in Concord for a lot of his writing period, close to the woods. He's friends with Thoreau. You're taking a look at nature, which doesn't have the Greek sculptures or the Roman roads or whatever, these things that man has created to realize himself in the world. You're looking at, frankly, a lot of open space. So what can be the Hudson Valley School of Philosophy? Yes. So what can be cultivated there? What what can you have? What are the values of that? And I think when we take a look at him saying, you know, 
don't, it's interesting that he's like an abolitionist in some ways, but then it's like, you know, society is basically like a wave that ebbs in and out, but it's largely made of the same particles, you know, things like that. Don't concern yourself with it too much. We see things like that. And I totally forgot where I was going with that. So when he's talking about that, what he's basically talking about is the eternal present of nature. Yeah. Nature doesn't have history in the way that Europe has history. And since America is purely nature, then there is something else going on here. That's I mentioned mm-hmm. the Hudson, the Hudson river, like the painters, um, the guys making extremely like glowy bombastic paintings of American nature scenes. Yeah. I typically like, I feel moved by some of them, so I'm not knocking them or anything. Totally. Like, in the same way that I love like, you know, the Dutch masters. Yeah. And yeah, when you see a totally. guy that like achieves that weird illuminated translucence of a wave with a mm-hmm. ship on it. And it's just this ecstatic experience <laughs> to just yeah, stare no. at it for hours. It's inexhaustible in the way that Kant would talk about it. The Hudson River Valley thing is becomes really dominant in the way that New England becomes dominant, right? It's a huge crisis for the Union soldiers who end up billeted in New Mexico when they come across Anasazi ruins and things like that, and they have to deal with what are obviously things that are older than they actually thought the world was, just obviously, and a whole series of vistas that were totally insane to them they thought it was deeply ugly because they were all from like new england or were reared in sort of the aesthetics of the hudson valley whether they knew it or not the historian hampton sides in blood and thunder describes it as an ocular dissonance in encountering it west for these people so that milieu is what emerson has to make an american subject out of and what he comes up with is this sort of iconoclastic, individualistic, and ahistorical kind of pure being. But it's unclear to me when we're reading it, like what this aristocrat of the soul does. What is this for? I mean, that's what I was left with when I was reading it. I don't know if you have any insights into that. Yeah, I could only say that it feels extremely... He seems to be pointing towards the fact that whatever that is, it will be largely self-determined. I don't want to be unfair to him, but it was hard to see like so when you want to talk about what kind of moral philosophy is present here what you really get into is like we were saying it's kind of a negative ethics which is really just saying like what you need to be free of in order to be ethical and being ethical is really just a fidelity to yourself in many ways you know we've talked before about uh the hamiltonian and jeffersonian traditions yeah there was like a spiritual jeffersonianism in that yeah we so what do you say here I remember an answer which, when quite young, I was prompted to make to a valued advisor who was wont to importune me with the dear old doctrines of the church. On my saying, what have I to do with the sacredness of traditions if I live wholly from within? My friend suggested, but these impulses may be from below, not from above. I replied, they do not seem to me to be such, but if I am the devil's child, I will live then from the devil. No law can be sacred to me but that of my nature." Good and bad are but names, very readily transferable to that or this. The only right is what is after my constitution. The only wrong is what is against it. A man is to carry himself in the presence of all opposition, as if everything were titular and ephemeral but he. Which, you know, the first time I read that, I was like, that's insane and, like, frightening. Yeah, I mean, I had a very, like, um, I would describe it as, like, a Periclean conservative democrat response to that where i was just like but we've morally invested in these institutions (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's i don't know i feel like a lot of ethical philosophy we'll say in the middle ages either in the islamic world or in the european world in the chinese world all kind of centers around the fact that you are just going to want to do a lot of things this is really reductionist but we'll just go with it for right now that's not necessarily going to be good for either you or the people around you all the time. So you need some ability to like rationally understand the things that you want to do mm-hmm. and have like a critical perspective on them and then make decisions either for or against the things that you would like to do based on the fact that you can actually think about them unlike an animal. And obviously this is going to be really big in the West with Islam and Christianity. 
man is separate from animal because he's rational. Mm-hmm. You know, reason while is a bulwark against the appetites and the passions, right? Which have a chaotic. Yeah, the level to which reason is enshrined in the Islamic tradition is extreme, and I would say oftentimes in the West as well, in Christianity, you'll see a pretty similar thing about totally. how reason. It is the ability of a man to actually be religious in some senses, because you can only be religious if you can think about things, because contrary to what one might call religiosity or sort of like a sentimentality, uh, religion in that definition is like knowledge in action. As, as Flannery O'Connor said, uh, pornography is to art what sentimentality is to Christianity. Yeah, and so I think that there's a healthy skepticism about things that just occur to you, present in like many places across the world, but then there's like a modern turn where suddenly people are just like, no. Actually, spontaneity. Well, I mean, I think, you know, maybe we can sort of materially locate that, right? Even though the industrial moment hasn't totally happened in America in the 1830s and 40s, that's largely um, a post-Civil War experience. The re- uh, it begins with the Reconstruction, really, because the gear up to the Civil War really cements and creates industry in America, you know, and also the birth of the railroads. We're not there yet, really. But... Society in parts of the West is still developing. And with development comes certain regimentations. And America at this time is also deeply religious in very certain like strict Protestant ways. So I can imagine watching an escalating regimentation and taking a look at religious stricture. And if I'm Ralph Waldo Emerson, and I am looking around what is frankly like the beautiful world of New England, which at its best is unbelievably gorgeous. And it exudes this sort of power. And that's a lot of what there is in America to say is American. I can understand thinking that what's going to be unique and vital about being American is not going to come from these regimentations or from these religious holdovers that aren't, you know, that are basically imported by the process of settling America, that aren't America itself. Yeah, I think it's easy for us to read backwards and be like, this sounds horrible because we're living in the fruits of this time where everybody's extremely isolated, depressed, and lonely. And the idea of self-reliance is sort of like a cruel joke. And meanwhile, like, it's almost obvious why I wouldn't want to be ruled by the things I want to do because the things that I want to do are like constantly being manipulated by advertising Mm -hmm. and imagery and like consumer research to sort of categorize me and put me into a box where I'll spend money some way or another. Your so desires kind of aren't like, your own. Yeah. There's a built-in deep cynicism and disaffection with kind of the results of maybe what we're reading. And it's easy for us to look at it and be like, this sucks. Like, I don't like this. I don't like where it leads. Yeah, I don't God. like the world that it's created. Well, I was talking to you last night about how it, I can see so much of the worst elements of the 60s new left, which basically becomes the California ideology. Yeah. And like the Silicon Valley, like first break all the rules or like move fast and break things. And I was like, why is so much of the dominant ideology about literally destroying everything around you for your own personal benefit? Yeah, like, with what? some optimism that maybe... That like, it's good on get, net. Yeah, know? it'll get picked up somehow yeah it's like we have people for that right and i mean i think what's cool about emerson when i'm reading this is i realize how much he preempts the existential tradition he has a big Mm -hmm. impact on nietzsche you can see these sort of concerns with authenticity and things like that when he's talking about intuition you know he opens by talking about you know what an artist says about their own individuality you know, to believe your own thought, to believe that what is true for you in your private heart is true for all men, that is genius. Speak your latent conviction and it shall be the universal sense for the inmost in due time becomes the outmost and in our first thought is rendered back to us by the trumpets of the last judgment. When I read that, I actually hear parts of Nietzsche's Beyond Good and Evil when he says there is no time at which someone is under more rules than when an artist is at their most spontaneous that there's this sort of unconscious structuring of the expression of the true self and those are interesting contradictions to look at but the difficulty now 
is that, as Zizek says, the injunction that's dominant in society today is to be yourself and to indulge and enjoy. This stuff for Emerson makes a ton of sense if you're dealing with like Lutheran, Calvinist, Unitarian strictures like that. You know, now when we are secularized, except accepting the religion of the market, which is the religion of indulgence um, and things like that, it leaves a bad taste in my mouth, which made me very uncomfortable because I wanted to give Emerson his due. But at the same time, reading these words was like embittering me in some way. Yeah, there's a a distinctly anti-Nietzschean sort of loose superstructure which he generates that kind of makes it all make sense if you agree with the like axiomatic postulates which are sort of hidden in there. Like I think the heart of it all is where he says, this is the ultimate fact which we so quickly reach on this as on every topic, the resolution of all into the ever blessed one self-existence is the attribute of the supreme cause and it constitutes measure the measure of good by the degree in which it enters into all lower forms, the genesis and maturation of a planet, the poise and orbit, the bended tree recovering itself from the strong wind, the vital resources of every animal and vegetable are demonstrations of the self-sufficing and therefore self-relying soul, which is kind of a statement like, so he's been called a pantheist and he may very well be um, in the sense that I don't think he really wants to distinguish things from God at a certain level. For him, that is the heart and root of this intuition and spontaneity is the fact that that is true, like that you are not really separate from the whole, which is not really separate from God. And so if his reading of history is kind of like, you're a man of history by being a man of the present, not by being a man who looks back. All the great men of history were men of their time, firmly rooted in their place, which he mentions in his bit about travel, like, and in that way, they were great because they were plugged into this stream that was like extremely, you know, there's like some sort of idea of like puissance to this whole thing. Um, and it seems to be what it all hinges on is like, if this is true, then the rest is true. And I can only register my complaint that it's sort of theologically tenuous to me. Um, <laughs> well, just because like traditionally, we'll look at the theologies that I will continue to appeal to as somewhat like normative before this time are that like self-existence is only predicated of God. And that's like what makes God, God in many ways. You don't predicate self-existence of created things because they don't possess it in any way, shape or form. Mm -hmm. We possess a dependent existence upon, you know, like this is, you know, you'll see it everywhere, but like we can look at Leibniz, for example, who I'm sure got it from Aquinas, who I'm sure got it from like, Avicenna, like mm-hmm. God is necessary existence and everything else is possible existence, could exist or could not exist by reason. Therefore, it's dependent and therefore it's contingent. It requires something else other than itself. Interrelatedness, dependence in a vertical sense, you could say, in that schema. And then also, I think if you look at stuff like Aristotle, there's a horizontal dependence mm-hmm. in the sense of you know, if you wanted to put Aristotle in conversation with Emerson, he would say, like, who is this self-dependent man, but like a beast or a god, you know? Yeah, yeah. That's what he says in the politics. And mm-hmm. I think it's book one or two. Uh, a man who doesn't need society is either a god or a beast. And in true Aristotelian form, it's not so, I know, say Aquinas reiterates this. Uh, I'm sure Avicenna does too. And perhaps even Maimonides, though I'm less familiar with sort of the Jewish Aristotelian tradition, um, is that it's not so much that God exists as God subsists. You know, you subsistent. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's the first mover of reality. So, yeah, we might have some objections to the pantheism of Emerson. But what I find interesting here, right, is so back to our Kojev episode where we talk about the animalization of man. It's very interesting because there is an animalizing instinct here in saying that you are but one iteration of this whole, that it starts to collapse categories between man and animal, that it prizes what we would call animal senses like instinct over what we, what are traditionally looked at as the human capabilities and capacity for rational thought, as we say. I bring this up because the moment at which Kojev points to animalization and the end of like rational progress happening. He points to America when 
the enjoy yourself consumers republic ideology that we now live in is really being solidified. And I think that there is a sort of emergent telos from Emerson in American culture and material development to that moment that is part of why it feels like we're living in an end of history time in America. Because if you're really living in Emerson, you are in an internal, eternal present. You are totally self-reliant. I mean, it, it's no mistake that we see overlaps with the cult of the entrepreneur here. And that there seems to be an atomizing and community disintegrating element to this. There is no regard, as we bring up and as Lash points out, for posterity here. And I don't necessarily think that that's because Emerson is some psycho who's totally self-involved. In other words, I don't think he's like a weird boomer, you know, narcissist. What I do think is that he's taking for granted that some of these structures will exist at all. It only makes sense if those structures are there, this way of being. Once this becomes dominant, it starts to be the snake that eats itself. If anything, we could say that that is maybe the fundamental point on which he seems to be ignorant is that the things that structure and form his life and outlook sort of secretly in opposition aren't necessarily always going to be there and they can't necessarily exist without your support. And if you haven't thought about what life is like without them, it may be wise to do so. It perhaps would be kind of the pervasive feeling that I kind of got when looking at this on a social plane is that there is in a sense like it's important to be critical and to reject things. And I can definitely see the appeal of saying that, like, look at this world of puffed up names and titles and all this, but it doesn't really mean anything about a man that which he hasn't gotten for himself by himself with his own character and being and whatever, like what he truly is. There's some appeal to that way of thinking because you do, and like living now, especially like you see it all the time. Like there is a proliferation of titles and things which are supposed to confer some sense of like authority or respect that seem completely bankrupt. And I think it's easy for us to all kind of agree that there is an importance to that critique, but I think the flaw that I kept finding in things that I would otherwise agree with in this text are that they lack any sense of the mean and they go all in one direction until it's as much of a folly as, you know, what he's opposing is in some sense. Tocqueville travels to America not long after this is written. And one of the things that alarms him about it, you know, I've mentioned this on the, uh, before, and we might, if we're really ambitious one day, do some episodes on democracy in America. But Tocqueville says, what's weird about Americans is that they don't need to read Descartes because they just do Descartes. <laughs> you know, it's this type of pragmatism that lives in an eternal present and seems to do, do with just going about your life and like being part of the Rotary Club or whatever, <laughs> you know? And, uh, uh, and as an aristocrat, that's very alarming to him. What's interesting to me is that it seems like Emerson wants to make a departure from a type of pragmatism that is overly involved in the everyday political, cultural world, which is interesting for a man who wants to live eternally in the present. I mean, I think that that's really where the like transcendentalist, naturist, romantic element comes in, because that's what's going to be what really furnishes this subject with all of its values and the things that it looks at. In other words, it fills the eye of the viewer with everything it needs to be whole. But what's funny about that is that this is really just like pragmatism with pantheism, you know, it seems like welded together in some way. Uh, It's like he can't quite escape the tradition he's writing in, in the way that we can't fully escape him now, it seems. Totally. And there's, because you're, I feel like there's a strain that you could call, you know, that of Hume and Smith and some of the like, the Anglo um, utilitarian kind of thinking, like empirical slash utilitarian. The Scottish Enlightenment guys, yeah. Where you've got this idea of, there is a sense of an eternal present, but it's kind of a like, take your pleasure, calculate profit and loss and engage in public commerce and get for thyself a beneficial position in society and enjoy and through this, the level of wealth and enjoyment will be raised slowly but surely. 
across the world. And that is kind of like a baseline, which I'm sure we're inheriting here in some sense or another. And a great, like, you know, if you look at Thomas Jefferson or something, it's, it's in his writing as much as he wants. Ben Franklin too. Yeah. Ben Franklin, especially. Um, So that's here. And that's a part of things. And you could say like Emerson's definitely jacked into that. But like we were saying, he's also jacked into like some Coleridge shit. So he's like, reading like Kubla Khan and like running around the woods and thinking about whatever he may know of like Fishta and Kant and yeah, yeah totally kind of like he's doing a whole other thing which is definitely like a strange combination of the American Scottish Enlightenment tradition with like this version of European romanticism of mm-hmm. various strains which is kind of like anti-social anti-society at least society ambivalent, we'll say. He's very right. ambivalent about society. He's not really against it. He knows it's there and that it has a historical existence. He says and that you it's participate not in it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You participate in it. And he identifies that society is not necessarily like evolutionary and it's not necessarily progressive for him, which I thought was actually pretty interesting. Because if I had to have guessed, mm-hmm. I would have said the opposite if I without knowing. Mm-hmm. But he actually sort of places his idea of society as like sometimes it's like this sometimes it's like that it'll get a little christian you know it'll get more like stoic it'll be civilized and then barbarous Mm -hmm. he doesn't necessarily locate any kind of specific trajectory for it which i think was kind of that was not going to be that fashionable um very soon it would be very much the idea that society is a train and it's going one direction and you're either on it or you're not on it, but like we're going yeah. to like places. He sees the better place, I think, because he's got like a whole metaphysics of process where you're like constantly, you're never there. You're always getting there in terms of your own personal perfection. It's part of an ongoing experience that just lasts until you die. And I think that he's trying to locate his sense of progressive evolution in like souls that are a part of a larger oversoul and society is not necessarily an avatar of that. It's just there. It's almost, you know, it's very weird. I can't quite put it all together. And I think that's something that maybe people say about Emerson. It is difficult to put it all together. I mean, yeah, he's an essayist, right? He's literally attempting. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, what, that's what's happening here. He's very much in the tradition of Montaigne. Obviously, there's a split at the beginning of our country's founding between the Jacobin sympathetics and the conservatives you know Mm -hmm. and what's interesting is that even if there's this amalgam of like eastern esotericism and like you know german idealism and scottish enlightenment stuff there still remains the like jeffersonian iconoclastic grain of the jacobin instinct even if he doesn't believe in a progressive society you know i found that like that kernel can't really be dissolved in America. Yeah, like it seems one of the most enduring elements of the American idea. It could be the handbook of like a yeoman for sure. I think that's pretty interesting that like mm-hmm. this could be the sort of philosophical, religious, spiritual handbook for like the quintessential American yeoman on his plot of land with his family, making it all happen on his own able to think about the issues and vote in the elections because mm-hmm. he's educated not only by books, but by life. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, this is definitely the ideology of that. And I feel like it must be because those guys read Emerson and loved it to some extent. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he is the most popular essayist in America for most of his lifetime. Towards the end of his life, you know, he understands that in the 1840s is sort of his window for greatness. And that after that, he's just not producing works that are up to the caliber of that moment of his life, but he still keeps writing. He's very candid with himself about it. And when his, I think, last book sells the most, he journals to himself that, well, this is just because I've been alive so long. And so you figure a name that you've seen all the time is a name you should read. You know? So I like that he, he wasn't self-aggrandizing in that yeah. way. I think it speaks to... One way to understand his uncomfortableness with the idea of self-consistency is a different interpretation of humility in the process of self-realization is I think the most like generous way I could put that. But as we wrap this up, one of the things that I want to point towards is there is a whole debate 
that continues. And I think maybe our next stop should be Poe because Poe has an interesting rebuttal, I would say, if not directly to the American scholar or some of the things that Emerson's saying here, but he has a brief essay on literary nationalism. And he sort of insults it and is interested in what might be happening in Europe and sees that as a cultivating thing. And it's obvious that Emerson did too, but he was more concerned with American uniqueness. However, Poe is just as uniquely American as Emerson. I mean, he, I think, really is the first to bridge the like low, high cultural split that becomes so pervasive in America and what mm-hmm. it becomes known for. And that's really worth spending time with. He's definitely the prototype for that amalgamation. His writing is both like transcendent and like kind of avant-garde and highbrow in its conception and at times like startlingly gaudy and, <laughs> and base, you know, <laughs> at the same turn. To so, make Rococo look sort of like dignified and reserved. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you told me that there's that um, contemporary <laughs> critic of his that says reading Poe is sometimes like getting hit in the face with a hand covered in gaudy rings. <laughs> oh, so I think that that's, that's worth spending some time with too. And maybe what we'll do is we'll do, um, we'll read for our next American canon thing, we'll read like a Poe short story, talk about it and then um, read The American Scholar and Poe's Literary National and sort of tease out some of what we've brought in here because we want to make this not like a series we're going to just like do every week, but something we'll come back to time to time to recover at this totally dead moment what it might mean to be American. And it's not so much to generate answers, but to find the right question because we seem to be asking so few questions of ourselves at this moment. So we hope that this has been productive for you as a listener. And we encourage you to go read the essay for yourself if you haven't already and to stick with us as we can this process.